This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 13th of September 2016. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is Jon, and as always, here's my co-host Dave. Hi, Dave. Hello, Jon. Good morning, or is it? Yeah, still morning for you as well, right? No, it's afternoon, I'm afraid. It's already afternoon? Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Time flies. And actually, time flies so fast that uh, you might notice when we go through the uh, news section that it's all well, reasonably old news because we're kind of uh, recording this one early in the uh, schedule due to, well, schedule constraining. Basically, we don't have much time in the next couple of weeks, so we have to do this one a bit early. And it also means that for our main topic, we're going to do a preview of the Melbourne Hadoop Summit. We won't be able to do it afterwards because that will be way too late. So we're just going to do a preview. But before we go into that, as we have now made a regular topic, Dave, what's your first news topic for the week? So news for the week. So the my first piece of news is actually follows on quite nicely from our previous uh, podcast where we started to uh, do a little delve into the world of security on big data. And it comes from the Cloud Security Alliance, uh, the CSA, uh, an organization <laughs> I'd never heard of before, but, you know, more power to them. And they have published their best practices for big data security. Uh, it's actually big data and cloud security, but significant focus on big data. Yes, I actually know these guys because it's one of the news items I was considering for today. But I had a little birdie tell me, I think Dave is going to come up with this one. So let's get yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, did you actually take a look at uh, what they produced? Um, uh, let's say I, was, I read it diagonally. Um, okay. I didn't see them really dis, uh, disagreeing with anything we're usually saying. No, no. I, so for those of you, obviously, the uh, links will be in the show notes. Um, but for, for sort of what I thought was quite interesting is they they laid it out in a really kind of easy way to consume. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's broke up into marginal sections. So, um, you know, secure computation in distributed programming frameworks, uh, security practice, practices for non-relational data sources, uh, secure data storage and transaction logs, endpoint validation, input and output, um, and real-time security and compliance monitoring. And it goes on and on. It's broken up into like, uh, I think they come up with about 10, yeah, 10 different sections, mm-hmm. uh, including data provenance, audit, uh, granular access control, all this kind of good stuff. So it's broken up into like really easy to understand, even if you're just getting started with big data and you're just kind of trying to understand what security looks like or what you need to think about. Each of these kind of sections is relatively standalone. So if you're just, for example, if you were just responsible for um, you know the security practices for non-relational data sources, then it's got it breaks that down into uh, you know to do things to do with data tagging, to do with uh, pluggable authentication modules, uh, you know what to do when you're setting up data at rest encryption or uh, TLS uh, data in motion security. Um, it's it's really kind of I think it's really well done. It doesn't go into a lot of detail. It just yeah. gives you for each individual point. Why is it important and how should you do it? So I, I really like it as a kind of intro. If you've got um, an organization or you're working with somebody or you are somebody that is starting to, to look at this side of things and want to understand the whole world of uh, big data security and privacy, I think this is a really great primer to get started. Yeah, yeah. they don't go technical at all, right? They don't show any code yeah. or, or scripts nope. or whatever. It's basically the concepts and when you should do what. Yeah, the concepts, why they're important, and how to do it. Just the very basic outline. Yeah, it's a very nice uh, handout for our episodes on security, perhaps. People can follow along with it. (laughs) Maybe we should try and see if we can contact these folks and see if they're willing to uh, have a chat. Might be. I mean, they sound like a kind of, not a ruling council, but more of a, like the ODPI, a kind of a governing, let's put some stakes in the ground and say what should be done if you want to be secure. So, yeah. yeah. Might be used, might be interesting. Yeah. So that was my first news article. Over to you. Okay. My first one, I'm uh, 
going back in time for myself here, and it's an article about Cray. Do you know Cray? I do know Cray. The Cray guys, they're well known for very big supercomputers, very big, expensive supercomputers. And I used to actually work for Cray in my younger years, or at least I worked for Silicon Graphics, and Silicon Graphics at a certain point in time purchased Cray, which meant I started working for Cray as well, or they started working for me, however you want to look at it. And there's actually a article on TechCrunch, it's a news article where Cray uh, has unveiled a new supercomputer, which is actually is actually specifically meant to do open source and Hadoop big data workloads. And the article itself it just explains the hardware and stuff, and it's an interesting read. But the reason I wanted to put it out here is that also in my own work uh, sphere in the last couple of months, more and more big iron is getting into Hadoop. When I started in this. Uh, crazy world of uh, big data five years ago, six years ago. It was all about cheap commodity hardware, no expensive stuff in there, just white box, white labels. Keep it keep it cheap, cheap, cheap. The last year, and definitely last half year, I get the impression that more and more of the expensive hardware is getting put, put, on, uh, put on top of there as well. With uh, I think because of the things like uh, Spark and other in-memory stuff, big memory gets important and things like interconnect between uh, chassis also becomes uh, interesting again. And with this Cray thing now really topping the scale for me, they're also having their big interconnect, which is faster than any kind of uh, InfiniBand you, you can think of. It's also a big part of their selling uh, story here. So it looks like the whole Hadoop ecosystem has left the cheap stuff behind and is now also becoming supercomputing. I think, I don't know, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that, but I think Mm -hmm. that there's definitely, I I would agree that there's definitely a a surge in traditional big iron companies, you know, trying to make make themselves relevant in a a scale out Mm -hmm. world. I think. If you look at uh, organizations that play very heavily on on the interconnect side of things, I'm not sure I really see the value. I know that, I mean, Teradata certainly have their appliance, which it makes a, a big deal of the InfiniBand um, sort of interconnect, mm-hmm. which I think is useful if you're pushing lots of data in from an enterprise data warehouse into a Hadoop environment that's all part of the same thing. That's also for their MPP database, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. But I'm not really so sure it makes sense just internally within Hadoop. I mean, 10 gig networks typically are more than fast enough. And hell, you can go to 40 gig Ethernet if you if you really want to for not a great deal um, yeah, more than 10 gig Ethernet. So, yeah, but don't forget the uh, TCPIP overhead there. All of these yeah. things, everything's Ethernet. You have yeah. that overhead, and the idea for Finiband and these interconnects from Spark, uh, from Spark, from Cray and stuff, they're about low latency, very raw data yeah. transfer, right? They are, they are. But then, obviously, the majority of what we're talking about in the big data and Hadoop world is less affected by that mm-hmm. because you have, uh, so, you know, when you're talking about uh, big iron and on-prem, typically you're talking about the traditional co-located compute and storage, and, you know, that sort of data locality means that the interconnect should be significantly less important or interesting um, well, that's also something that I'm seeing changing because uh, both at Amazon and at Microsoft, which I know more, uh, those uh, public clouds also have high com- high performance computing uh, instances that actually have InfiniBand interconnects available. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. You, you see it evolving there as well. And I'm, se- I'm certainly seeing people trying to make it yeah. look like it's relevant. I'm not sure I y- yet agree mm-hmm. that it really is relevant. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see your point where it's just the old iron trying to stay relevant. It's definitely a big piece in there. And I would also totally agree that the big iron from Cray here is a lot less supercomputer than their biggest ones from 10 years ago were. But if you're looking at things like Spark, for example, the whole uh, easily parallelizable stuff, the whole MapReduce thing, they know how to do that. That works well. But more and more, there's a push to to have again communication between the little workloads and in spark you have uh, two ways of having um, variables keep a state if you like across the whole thing but it's very uh, unelegant let's call it to work with 
And there are other things. It wasn't Flink. There was another, uh, I forget the name. It was another project that was actually differentiating, the, uh, differentiating themselves on the fact that they did have shared variables across uh, the different uh, partitions that were running on the, on the cluster. Yeah. And also the thing that I would well, like to mention here is that in the olden days, you had the Beowulf clusters, which were simple clusters, and at a certain point, the software stagnated a bit. So the way yeah. to move forward was to put in bigger hardware. And at a certain point, the hardware becomes so ludicrously expensive that you have a new evolution in software that makes it again runnable on lesser performant hardware. Now, yep. Hadoop was definitely one of those, let's go back to a software that's much more intelligent to have better performance on even mediocre hardware. But now seeing that we're going back to big hardware, does that kind of mean that the software perhaps has reached an inflection point where it doesn't give the evolutionary steps anymore that people are expecting? So let's put on bigger hardware to see if, to see if we can make it faster that way. I don't know. I don't know. I My personal feeling is that I don't think it has reached that stagnation point yet. Mm-hmm. I do think that – I do think there's a different – class of customers now looking at big data solutions that just expect big iron solutions to be there i wonder if yeah. i wonder how much of that is the market is what not yeah, so not yeah, just yeah, yeah. so it's almost kind of the vendors are getting ahead of the curve because they know that this next wave of customers you know there's you can talk about crossing the chasm and one would say that hadoop has definitely crossed that chasm in many in many ways but the you know the organizations the other side of that chasm are, are very much the the core uh, core yeah. customers of those big iron organizations yeah, yeah. yeah that's a good point i mean uh, in, in, in you and me in our, in our work it's sometimes so much easier to have a customer spend a million dollars than just to get them to spend ten thousand dollars yeah because yeah and definitely in the old the older customers the more the people are working with hadoop today those are the uh, let's call them university research development kind of things they're used to working with smaller budgets but now that it has crossed the chasm as you say you're more talking to i don't know big banks uh insurance companies really the big mastodons out there and yeah. those guys yeah they're you're right they're used to be dealing with these kind of people and these kind of uh solutions so that might just be it Never know. You never know. Anyway, I thought it was a fun thing to see that craze stepping into the whole uh, big data Hadoop world. Yeah, they they had a small presence at uh, at Strata um, in the UK, but I, I never actually got around to uh, talking to the folks there. They've always had really cool marketing as well. They just uh, Cray just evokes a certain yeah, yeah for at least for for hardware geeks it, it evokes a certain level of of coolness. Yeah. Um, but yeah, interesting, interesting. Okay, over to you again. All right. So my next one um, is debunking the most common big data backup and recovery myths. <laughs> so this is uh, actually um, uh, an article on Network World from IDG, and it, it's 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 quite it's quite good. Although <laughs> it's also quite interesting that they basically they debunk the myths, but they provide no method of guidance for. Um, you know what you should do if you are in this position. So let me give okay. you um, an example. They they talk about um, multiple replicas of data eliminates the need for separate backup and recovery tools. That's myth one, um, which mm-hmm. is 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 fairly clear. You know in most in most cases replicas uh, within the world replicas are done for uh, resilience. So if you have hardware failures. Um, you know, racks go down and nodes go down and that sort of thing, then you, you still have the data. It's also done for performance to mm-hmm. ensure that, you know, the same piece of data can be processed on multiple nodes at the same time in parallel. Yeah. Um, so that kind of is it, all fine. It all makes sense. But, but it doesn't protect you from me. No, it doesn't protect you from you, uh, the malicious user. And and they kind of sort of get onto this. So I'll just uh, – there's only a handful of these, so I'll just kind of quickly read them out. But uh, the second one is uh, lost uh, myth two, lost data can be quickly and easily rebuilt from the original raw data. Um, now everybody knows that that's, that's a myth, uh, that's complete rubbish. Even if you've got the entire data pipeline – like your the scale of data that you'll have on a Hadoop cluster is ever growing. So, 
Yeah, mm. I, I get that, but like, yeah, I'd, so I'd what say, are you going to do about it? <laughs> I'd say it's it's relative. What's, what is fast for you, what is fast for me? If fast for me means two weeks, then maybe just possible. Yeah. But if fast means I want it now, well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of this is that what's your what's your time to time to restore or time to recovery? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might find it acceptable that it takes two weeks to to build. But what you might not find acceptable is that that's going to consume you know ninety percent of the resources on your cluster for that two weeks. Maybe that is the piece that's not acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also so, not a new problem, of course. You, even no. in the tape world, they had the same problem because tapes basically yeah. were never readable after a couple of years. So yeah. Oh, at least that solved the problem. You didn't have to restore it anymore because it's gone anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all, it's all gone in the bit bucket. Yeah, but if we're um, going to try and provide answers for the mid busting for the first one, do we have an answer for the mid busting there? What what you do against the malicious user that does a RM minus R everything? So they talk actually about this a little bit further down. Um, okay. So they're they're not they're not all necessarily things you can directly counter. Some of them are just it's a myth. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, so let's go. Myth number three: backing up a petabyte of big data is not economical or practical. Um, so what they're basically saying is use use newer backup techniques um, to you know, use deduplication to store efficient backups, uh, incremental uh, backups, and that sort of thing. But they don't actually talk about what these sort of backup solutions are. And you know, from what I've seen, a lot of the traditional backup solutions just are not, you know, you can't get a petabyte of data backed up at any kind of reasonable cost. So I'm not really sure. I, I, I think this is a, I don't necessarily think this one is a myth. I think this no. is a reality. I mean, part of it is the question is, well, how big is your pocketbook? If you've got enough money, then everything's economical and practical. Um, but, yeah, I'm not quite so sure I'd, I buy into that. Yeah, I would agree there. I mean, it's always going to be, if you have a reasonably sized Hadoop cluster, there's going to be a balancing of cost versus how important is this data for me and then checking yeah. in your petabyte of data, I'm going to back up this 100 terabytes because that's the stuff that my business depends upon. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole idea of data lakes is to capture everything just in case you need it. But if you haven't really defined a I need it for this or that uh, end goal, does that data at that point still has value? I guess, and if you can keep it, you should. But if you lose it, it's not going to make you bankrupt. Yeah, and if yeah. your idea for backup uh, processing is, I have to make sure that my business continuation continuity is is guaranteed than backing up that spare data, let's say. You shouldn't really have to do that. Yeah. So myth number four, remote disaster recovery copies can serve as a backup copy. And hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is basically one of the sort of cases that you were talking about, which, which I completely get. Like if you have um, data being replicated from you know, site A to site B, that you know, if your data is deleted on site A, that um, that replication of the deletion will potentially go across to site B. Should, so yeah. that's the whole idea, right? Yeah, that's right. So the what it's saying is basically, you know, point in time because you don't have those point in time copies that you can roll back to mm-hmm. um, as necessary as part of this. Then you know you need to make sure you've got something else in place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should basically use checkpointing for that, right? HFS has support for checkpointing. Just yeah. checkpoint a directory every hour, so you have a incremental in time version of of the data. Yeah, HDFS snapshots. Snapshots. Yes, yeah, sorry, that's the word. Yeah. So that that's basically a solution because if your synchronization system works so badly that you never delete anything on the other side, that's I don't know. I think it's bad for business. Business. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> So this this one I'm, this one amused me and I'm sure will re- amuse you. Uh, myth number five: writing backup slash recovery scripts for big data is easy. Now I don't know whoever who who on earth thinks that's a myth. Like I mean, who has ever thought? Well, backing up that stuff's easy, like a petabyte of data or whatever. Backing up big data is is always going to be difficult, and I don't really understand who on earth would think. Um, that it's simple. One thing I do think is is quite good is that 
Um, they mentioned towards the end of this, this particular myth, um, uh, if I'll just read this out. Most organizations do not re- realize that there is significant hidden costs and expertise to write good backup scripts for big data platforms. Uh, the recovery process is much harder and more error prone. So I, I think that is very, very right. And I think organizations don't realize the, um, the sort of capital they need to invest in this to make sure it's absolutely bulletproof. Yeah, but this is not specific for big data. This is just backup and recovery in general. Everybody backs True. up this data and never, nobody ever restores it. So when it needs, it's needed, it doesn't work. That's just basic uh, truth in the, in the industry. Yeah, you may as well back up to DevNull each day. It's very, very fast. And very, yeah, it's very performant, very cost-effective. Yeah, space-efficient, space yeah. very good. But, I, mean, I do have a bit of a problem with the article where on the one hand, they're kind of telling you there's, you just can't do backups and then say it's hard to write scripts to do backups. If you can't do a backup anyway, then it's easy to write a script because you don't have to, because you can't do it. Yeah. Or is that too circular? <laughs> well, a little bit, a little bit. And in, in that same vein, you'll like number six, which is big data backup slash recovery operation costs are very small. Again, who who on earth what? ever thought that? So, you know, but they, they, they talk about the people cost, the storage cost, and the downtime costs, which is all, it's all very true. But I, I don't, mm. these last two, I don't really, I don't really yeah. see as myths. I don't see anybody underestimating that the costs are going to be, oh, the costs for backing that up are going to be small. And the, you know, the, the effort to write the, that backup infrastructure is going to be easy. I don't think anybody has ever thought that. But, but uh, it can yeah, always be in, in, in relative tool, right? Uh, it can be cheap in comparison with backing up, I don't know, a traditional Oracle system because it's licensing and stuff and that kind of stuff in there. Yeah. So from that point of view, I might say, yeah, maybe. But, okay, any more myths? Yeah, so there's one, one, one more, one more, which is, and, and this actually relates to something we were talking about earlier, myth number seven, snapshots are an effective backup mechanism for big data. Uh-huh. So they're busting that myth by basically saying, Yes, you can use um, snapshots as part of a backup policy, mm-hmm. but there are a significant number of considerations. Um, so one of those is, one of those considerations, for example, is snapshots are great if your data isn't changing very rapidly. If you've got a you know a high degree of uh, data change, if you've got a significant uh, volume of data being ingested, for example, then you will end up with a very significant storage overhead for snapshots to keep a few uh, point-in-time copies. Um, so, yes, you can use them to you know, establish consistency of the backup data and metadata, but it's not really a, it's not really a, a complete one-stop shop. It's not completely automated. Recovering from a bunch of snapshots will be you know, fairly tricky. It'll be inconsistent. You'll need to, um, in, inconsistent from a, um, consistent from a data perspective, but possibly inconsistent from a, an application perspective, for example. So I think it's, it, it is talking about the fact that, you know, snapshots, you can't just say, well, I've snapshotted my data. Therefore, you know, I'm done here. Um, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. So I would kind of agree with that last one. It's not just. Uh, it's not just snapshot and then done. There's there's more to think about in that space. Yeah, but that's the same thing when you do normal backups with incrementals and full backups. You, if you have 20,000 incrementals restoring, that's going to be annoying too. Yep. So what do you do? You make, uh, what's the intermediate one? You have uh, incremental, you have full, and you have differential. So you can, yep. you ha- there are strategies of doing that, and that's done in software. That's how your methodology works. Yeah, I mean, You just don't put stuff on the tape and say you have a backup. Yeah, so from that but point you'll need to actually implement that. That's yeah. what they're saying. There could be some more automation built in. That's true. But anyway, from that point of view, I, I agree. There's there's more effort in there, but it's not something new. So you might be able to reuse a lot of what you have already. The first thing you talked about, though, it sounded like they were saying that a snapshot does a copy of the data, which isn't the case, right? Snapshotting <laughs> takes no storage space at all. So it, it takes up some space because it's you've got the the metadata of the delta of the change, haven't you? Only when you start writing again. Yeah. The but moment you snapshot, that doesn't grow at all. Only the stuff that you delete from that point onwards isn't deleted in the snapshot. So you don't clean up your data space that way. 
but yep. the data overhead is quite small. So I don't see that as a reason not to use snapshots. Yeah, but I mean, that's why they're talking about if you've got a significant uh, rate of data change. Yeah, but if you don't have a significant rate of data change, you don't need backups because nothing changes anyway. <laughs> <laughs> We're back to your circular logic, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, oh well, that's not even a Monday. Yeah. All right, back to you then. Uh, back to me. Um, yeah, the second one, it's not really a news story, but it's a website I want to throw out there because in my day-to-day work, I often get the question, where do I get my data scientists? Or I want to train a data scientist or I want to become a data scientist. What should I do? And there's a bunch of, um, uh, I don't know, tutorials and guides and whatever on, on online. But one website I hope everybody has heard of, but uh, since I hadn't heard of it since, I don't know, about a year ago, Maybe some people haven't, so I'm going to throw it out there, and that's Kaggle.com. It's K-A-G-G-L-E. And they call themselves your home for data science. Kaggle helps you learn, work, and play. And the fun thing about Kaggle is it gives you something to do. On the one hand, they have data sets available. That's a good thing. And they have competitions. It's a bit of a crowd-funded, crowd-sourced data science analytics tool, if you like, where anybody can host a competition and put something online saying, for example, uh, I'm Netflix and I want to have my recommendation engine improved. We put a prize next to it and then people can try and solve that. So as a data scientist, sometimes you have a thing like, I'm just learned about a new clustering methodology and I want to do something with it, but... I don't really know what I should do with it. And with all of these things, practice makes perfect. So having something to work on helps a lot. And that's what Kaggle can come in. That's what Kaggle can do for you. It can give you a goal to deepen your knowledge, to just play with these algorithms, play with the stuff, and uh, see what you come up with. So is it, it's like a sort of uh, also uh, a freelancer's sort of um, environment where people can sign up to jobs and complete them and all that sort of thing? Well, they actually have a real job board as well, and some companies actually post a competition for their applicants. So if you want to apply for the job, you have to solve the competition problem, and based on your score, you will get a job or not. There's going to be HR looking at you as well, of course, but they, some people use it for that. But it's more of a yeah open source, crowdsourced uh, solutioning things because you have a lot of, for example, the, the most recent competitions, uh, they kind of have things to do with those uh, small yellow animals, uh, Pokemons. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things going on at the moment about uh, predicting what Pokemon's going to appear where. And I haven't really gone into depth because the Pokemon Go is fun, but not really what I do every day. But it can be anything and everything. And if I look now on the first page here, I've got uh, predicting Red Hat business value. It's a very big business one. Inventory demand, house pricing in the regions, uh, digit recognizers, totally our academic one. Uh, Titanic machine learning from disaster. Uh, anything and everything is in there. Interesting, interesting. And if you're just looking for inspiration, uh, most of these things are done in notebooks. You yeah. know, the Jupyter notebooks, can, you can just copy and paste stuff. And uh, it's a very nice tool. I wish I had more time to, to play with it. Because <laughs> one pe- person has to work as well. But if you're doing, for me, when I go here is when I have a new piece of technology I was looking at and I now want to do something with it to really crock it, to really learn it. I'd go here and look if there's, by coincidence, a competition going on and see if I can do something with it. Maybe I don't go to the end of it, but it's just uh, a way to keep you busy. And historical, um, you know, previous results also available there, so you can see other competitions that have completed? Uh, yeah, there will be some kind of a roll-up uh, uh, after some amount of time, I guess. I haven't really looked how far they keep uh, history, but uh, yeah, you can just uh, look things up. Now, if you do enter a competition there, uh, you have to read the fine print, because some of these competitions actually say that the winning uh, suggestion of the winning entry, uh, that the IP becomes property of the competition uh, yeah. uh, host. Not all, some of them do that, and usually it's for good reasons. I mean, if you're a big commercial company and you want to base your next evolution of your business on whatever turns up in this competition, then yeah, I guess you want to protect that IP a bit. But uh, read the fine print, shouldn't be too hard to figure it out. Yeah, and uh, as you say, it's kind of interesting. If you're looking for an inspiration as to uh, something to 
something with some actual data that you can go and play around with. It sounds like a great way of uh, you know, stretching your legs. Yeah, they've got a whole bunch of uh, data sets. Uh, yeah, Pokemon starts uh, horses for courses, daily horse racing uh, machine learning <laughs> for fun, uh, gender recognition by voice, EEG brainwaves, uh, IMDb movie database, Yeah, the, the always present Iris database, of course. <laughs> uh, Philadelphia crime, crime data. It's pretty American oriented, of course. Yeah. It's a U.S. company, so but hey, for data, who cares, right? NFL league is in there. Death in the United States. And on that cheery moment, <laughs> <laughs> over to you. <laughs> All right. So my my last article. It's a little bit of a puff piece, but uh, it's a fairly long article, and actually, there were several points that did make me smile. I thought it was quite interesting. So, sharing out with the audience. So the, the title here is. Big Data, Google, and the End of Free Will. <laughs> so, what this, the, the premise of this article, basically it starts off with um, sort of, it, it touches on everything. So it's, it starts off with, um, for thousands of years, humans believed that authority came from the gods. Um, and then it sort of, it starts to um go into so it starts off talking about god and then it sort of segues into talking about silicon valley profits um essentially uh, providing uh, prediction and that sort of thing based on the authority of algorithms and big data um so it it, it goes all the way through uh, sort of understanding what this means to, to sort of various different people um the the sort of all-knowing, all-powerful systems that are connecting and aggregating all of this data together, and sort of what they can, what they can actually do to to predict, um, you know, what you're going to be doing next, what should be interesting, and what we may sort of be asking those these sort of systems in the in the future. So, the uh, it, it goes through um, talking about the church. Uh, through to KGB and uh, then talking about Google and Facebook, all, pretty much all within, in fact, all within exactly the same uh, sentence. So the example it gives towards the end of the article, I think, was brilliant. Uh, is, so it talks about uh, someone who is sort of uh, starting to date two particular people and uh, asks their all-powerful AI, uh, which person should I actually, uh, which person should I actually, uh, you know, commit to and, and carry on seeing? And uh, not only does does the all uh, all-encompassing AI system go and uh, give the recommendation, it then gives sort of. Uh, metadata around that to the to the sort of point of and I know you won't like this recommendation because you think this and that and something else whereas actually the reality is this that and something else is more important and therefore I predict with an eighty seven percent level of certainty that you will be happier in the longer term with this particular person um, so it it's kind of it's kind of interesting um, the sort of and you can see elements of this kind of appearing. We talked uh, last episode a little bit about, you know, uh, providing value to customers instead of just targeting them with advertising and that sort of thing. You know, big data is definitely making uh, an impact and making itself known within um, within a lot of our interactions. So it's, uh, whether things will quite go this far, whether you'll be talking to your talking to your phone or your computer or whatever to ask uh, who you should be dating or dumping I'm not quite sure I believe it'll go that far but who knows yeah well things are kind of moving that way because if I if I hear you right they're still talking about predicting and yeah. in the whole machine learning and analytics world there's been this move from reporting, looking at the past, to predicting the future. And the yep. next step, which is actually getting a lot of momentum and a lot of people working on that, is prescriptive. Yep. Where you not only predict what's going to happen, but decide what you need to do to make a prediction reality. And there's a small loop there, of course. If you want to change the future, what do I need to do to make the predictive future not work, but my more ideal for me future happen? Yep. So 
people are definitely working on this. So this yeah. article may be less fluff than you think. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, I look forward to the uh, data-driven dating uh, where actually you just sign up to a service and you're allocated the person uh, you'll be most happy with. I think that would be hugely amusing. And uh, no doubt as that flows forward, we'll see some horror stories come out of it <laughs> as things are uh, evolved. But, uh, it yeah. might just work out very well because a lot of the stress around dating is have I made the right choice or not? And if you can outsource that to a machine, well, I didn't make the choice, so... No, no responsibility. Let's just have fun. Yeah, and and that and that is what they're saying. They're saying that uh, you know, the the idea is that you have the it is the death of free will. You you don't you almost completely absolve yourself from any responsibility. Well, the computer told me to do it. Okay, mm. so it's the utopian way of uh, loss of free will. It's loss yeah. of free will, and we're happy about it. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, as long as it works out, I guess. Until, <laughs> well, until at that point, you don't care over. anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That's it from me. Okay. Well, I had a third one, but it's a bit of a small one. And we're kind of running over the half hour mark already. So I'm going to keep it in my head for next time. And unless you have anything to add here. Nothing else from me. Nope. Then let's close off this first part of the the podcast episode. Uh, We'll head into music now. When we come back, we'll be talking about the Hadoop Summit in Melbourne. That is uh, starting uh, tomorrow. Indeed. Tomorrow from where we are recording today, of course. See you then. And welcome back. So, today's, uh, the main meat of the episode, is to talk about the Hadoop Summit 2016 Melbourne, Australia. August 31st to September 1st. Uh, So it has, uh, you know, it starts tomorrow in terms of the actual core sessions. Very first uh, Hadoop Summit in Australia, very first Hadoop Summit in Asia Pacific generally. So, Jon, what do you think? Uh, I think I'm still happy that the uh, Hadoop Summits are going around the world. It's uh, good because a lot of people have interest here and that's uh, good to see still growing. I think this is going to be the last one that's actually called Hadoop Summit, is it? I believe so. I think we yes. mentioned that last time that they are evolving the um, the title beyond just Hadoop. Yeah, because last time in Ireland they said the next one in Europe is going to be called differently, the Data Summit or something. Yeah. And the next one's going to be the Berlin one, right? I believe so, yes. So that looks good. We've got the agenda in front of us here. It's smaller than the other ones, apparently. I only see four parallel tracks. But considering that both Dave and I have been uh, annoyed with having too much choice every every hour, that might not be a bad thing. So uh, I would just like to go, uh, let's go through it and see if you have anything new in there or if it's all just rehashed old stuff. Because one of the risks you have with having that many uh, summits is you can't have entirely new shows for every single summit. And already when there were only two, there were the US one and the European one. Hortonworks was the main contributor here, of course. Uh, they kind of kept all their juicy stuff uh, for the American one. That was always my my small complaint. I didn't think that was so much the case this time around, though. I I True. thought the there was a fairly consistent look and feel yeah. uh, for the core areas that were going from the Dublin one to the San Jose one. Certainly from from you know I I was lucky enough to be at both of them, mm-hmm. and uh, I think they were fairly consistent from that front. So I thought that was that was actually pretty good and. But would you say they were very uh, sorry? Would you say they were very repetitive then? So, I mean, this goes into the the breadth of Hadoop Summit San Jose, which is it's just so much, so many more tracks running in parallel that you can just go and attend other stuff. So, okay. I think that you, it's not so much about kind of the the repetition; it's about the fact that you there are so many other things that you can go and see if you've already seen a lot of the the core content that maybe caught your eye the first time round. Okay, so it'd be interesting to see if the Melbourne one is focused on the core stuff, or if they also allowed it to grow beyond uh, the, the small spectrum. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, my initial impression. So I'm just looking at uh, day one here, and there are some. There are obviously some clear. 
themes that have come through uh, the other two summits and are here again. So, I mean, I would I would personally would call out the uh, Apache Hive 2.0 SQL mm-hmm. speed and scale, um, the LLAP uh, analytical queries in Hive, and the Apache Spark and Zeppelin in production. They all happen to be Horton work sessions. They're all um, sort of for me, they were kind of key sessions, uh, you know, that, that were I was very interested in at the other summits and have actually managed to see them. Um, there's also the first, uh, the first one of the uh, Atlas uh, metadata and governance. I haven't uh, gone through, through on to day two yet to see if the other follow-on ones are there as well. But those, you know, those sort of. Um, are probably the the core topics mm-hmm. that I think have been consistent pretty much throughout. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of wondering for the Hive 2.0, uh, when we had it in Ireland, it was looking forward to when it would be released. Uh, yeah. I don't think it was released for Cycle either. I have no. no idea what the current state is, if it has evolved or not. Because basically that would be, it's the first session in the first uh, column, so they do want to put some uh, spotlight on it apparently. Yeah, so there was definitely. Be, it would still be one I was going would, would go and look at, just yeah. to figure out where they are. Yeah, one thing I noticed actually, um, I suppose it's a slight aside, um, but it it was kind of curious. Is if you go back and look at the agendas for Dublin, um, and I'd recommend our audience go and do that as well. What you'll see if if you click on a particular. Um, session, you'll get a pop-up which says, uh, you know, more details about the session, and then you can, uh, there's a link to the YouTube video of the actual session, mm-hmm. and there's also a link to the slides for the session. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do the same for Hadoop Summit San Jose, what you will find is not every single session has uh, either the slides or the video. Some mm-hmm. of them have one or the other. Um, I didn't come across one that had neither, but I was just checking something last week um, for something a session that I'd seen, and uh, I could only get hold of the uh, the the slides for one session. I could only get hold of the video for another session. So it's kind of good that uh, the topic was also run at Hadoop Summit Dublin because I could get the video from Dublin <laughs> and the uh, and the slides from San Jose. But uh, I thought that was a little bit poor. I uh, mm. kind of if the stuff isn't isn't 100% complete i think i think it's a real shame i think that's uh, something that they should really struggle to get right yeah, maybe for the videos in san jose as you said it's, a, it's a, such a big event they have so many parallel tracks that in the smaller tracks they don't have the equipment to do the recording still could be that that could should be, be that would be a shame though cuz yeah but not having the slides up unless it's really a totally hands-on demo which i have never seen at the hadoop summit there's no reason not to have your slides up there. Agreed. Agreed. So I am I'm actually going to kind of fire a request into the Hadoop uh, Summit <laughs> team to see see what's going on there, whether we can, actually, whether it's just something that was missed or whatever. But yeah, uh, And of course, people, this, a lot of this stuff is voluntary, volun- voluntarily driven, or how you say this, driven by volunteers. That's better English. So you, I guess the organizers, they are kind of dependent on the people that are talking to give them the slides. Yeah, yeah, true, true. Uh, I would, but the the slides are usually uh, pre prepared on the systems that uh, actually are being run by the event organisers. So, I would mm. hope that at least a version of the slides was already there. But yeah, who knows? Who knows? Some people are uh, are a little bit last minute in producing that sort of material. So I'm guessing it's things like that that possibly didn't make the uh, make the migration across to the. Um, the actual agenda. Anyway, enough of these sides. Indeed. We were talking so, Hive 2.0. Uh, I didn't want to go into the LLAP one because you mentioned both of them. The LLAP one, I, if I look at it, it's actually J- uh, Yahoo Japan that's talking about it. So and actually, that's that's a different one. So that, that was oh. the one that I was going to call out as, oh, yeah, as being... So that on the three till four, that's the yeah. that's the same session that's been repeated Total elsewhere. Yeah. The real the real life Hive LLAP. You're right. That's, that's a new session. One. I think that is definitely going to be interesting. That's definitely a session that I'm going to be uh, trying to hit up for the slides and the video because I think I've seen what I believe to be um, some of the the stats that come out of that testing, mm-hmm. and it's it's pretty impressive what they've done. I, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. 
And if my memory serves, uh, Yahoo Japan actually was one of the test sites for LAP and they did a lot Correct. of co-development there. So I hope they have somebody dev. presenting that actually knows what they were doing. They can actually talk about what went right and what went wrong. Yeah. Yeah, a, a lot of codev work. There was a lot of a uh, lot of testing. They had access to early versions of the code and have been, you know, pretty much continually hammering away at that code, which mm-hmm. has been upstream. You know, anyone can take that. It's not yeah, it's uh, all just right. something. Yeah, exactly. It's all stuff that's that's in the upstream Apache projects. But they've been hitting that stuff hard, probably for at least six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you know it's it's in the state that it is uh, today. So we have a a lot to uh, to thank the Yahoo Japan team for. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never actually heard a Yahoo Japan talk. I've heard a lot of Yahoo um, US uh, talks, of course. Oh, so. I've I was actually let's see last year I attended one which was around um, HDFS innovation that was really good. It okay. was um, went through sort of uh, the evolution of HDFS. You know some of the jiras that came through it in the last uh, last twelve months, and sort of the areas that are, were still sticking, and some of the new new functionality. So I, I think Yahoo Japan um, yeah. have done a good job previously. So I look forward to this one. I'm kind of wondering on a macro level with uh, Yahoo US being slowly dismantled, if Yahoo Japan is going to take the technology crown away from them. <laughs> It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, they, they've always been, you know, I mean, they're just so dominant within their marketplace. I mean, Yahoo, it's a bit strange, but Yahoo is the Google of Japan, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they, they do, it's, it's a very, very different market space to the way that Yahoo yeah. uh, operates in the rest of the world. So yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, should we actually make a choice of which uh, uh, session we would go and watch if you were invited there? I don't. Uh, I don't know. Well, I don't know do that, that makes sense because we've seen so many of these yeah, things still. from other ones. Okay. For the first block, I would go for the Apache Hive to the door, as I said, just to see what the advance, uh, what the what the evolution has been. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a. I think that's a good solid choice. I, I would not disagree with you there. Um, I would say for the sort of second part, it would have to be the Yahoo Japan that we've just been raving on about. Real yeah, life high LLAP. At uh, Yahoo Japan, yeah, that's going to be a must. Three to three forty part. Yeah, nothing there. Well, I guess the LAP one there. Just see first, see the theory, and then listen to Yahoo but Japan. But you see, I wouldn't go to see that because I've already seen that. So uh, yeah, but let's just stay on the generic <laughs> term. Which of the four, if you are a big data enthusiast, okay. would be your choice? Okay, business ones. Way. I always run away from a bit because I'm too scared of having marketing thrown at me. The real time. Yeah. Mm. So I, I've actually, I've actually went to the Telstra. Oh, I've seen the Telstra one before, and it was okay, but it didn't, it didn't rock my world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it would be LAP yeah. for that next session. Yeah. For the Yahoo Japan LAP session, I'm kind of sad. It's in the same time as the Apache Spark and Zeppelin. But you oh, can go and catch, you know, go and watch one of the other sessions that happened at one of the other summits. It's the same as the others, I think. Yeah, and it's also it's from it's a Horton worker that's talking about Zeppelin. So uh, for Zeppelin, I'm looking forward to seeing somebody tell me how to use it in production. Yeah. So not from a distributor, but from uh, I don't know, from a Telstra or uh, or Yahoo Japan, from whatever like here. Yeah, yeah. So the rest, uh, the Inferno one's also interesting. Deep learning element Spark, uh, Apache Atlas. I wouldn't go to because there hasn't been that much change there, right? Uh, not really. I mean, it's just been adding a whole series of other um, providers that, that are dumping their lineage into Atlas. But from a um, yeah, from a core functionality, there's not a significant amount of change to what we've seen at previous right. loop sites. Okay, next slot what we have for reaching the afternoon, so things get less a little less interesting, perhaps. Uh, Yahoo, uh, sorry, uh, Hadoop Yarn, past, present, future. That's one I've seen before, I think. Healthcare insights, meh, maybe. Oh, Apache Zeppelin by NFL Labs, so maybe a bit of a hands-on. And then NiFi, the avant-garde of Apache NiFi from Hortonworks. Which one would you do? I would probably go to um, the healthcare insights one. So Immersive are a, a big data consulting organization. Mm. Um, in Australia, so I would probably go there. I, I like the, uh, I like some of the focus of some of the business tracks and see what actually people have done with the tech. Yeah, I guess I'd go for the Zeppelin one. I was asking for a hands, uh, a practical use uh, case, and that looks like it's one of. 
them. So let's go that one. All right. Final one. So final slot on day one. Yep. What's your choice? I personally, so I've seen the uh, uh, SQL on the cloud sessions. Um, this is a slightly different one. Um, the Barcelona Supercomputing Center have previously done sessions on uh, big data as a service. So this is a sort of uh, a variation on that theme where they're talking about uh, SQL on Hadoop in the cloud. But I think that it was interesting, um, but I would probably still um, focus more on tooling for big data analytics quality. I think that's, which is with the uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia. That would be my pick for this session. I think that could be that could be quite interesting to see what they're actually using, why they're using it. Yeah, and also since it's the Bank of Australia, there's a smaller chance of getting this talk on the other uh, Hadoop summits. So that would be yeah. a good uh, pro to go for that one. But again, it's on the business track, which I never really enjoyed that much. So I think I would go for the K9, the big data analytics at your desk with K9, because I, I tried to get catch that one before and was always lost to competition. So maybe you would get a choice. Fair enough. Yeah. On to day two then. Yes, he's full day. First day was only half a day. Only started at uh, midday until uh, six or seven thirty. Second day is a full day, apparently. No, yep. so yeah, it's a full day. Yeah. So let's see. Ooh. So for me, um, I think it would have to be another Yahoo Japan session. It's the HDFS erasure <laughs> yes. coding in action. Definitely. Um, it, I mean, erasure coding is such. For those of you that aren't familiar with HDFS erasure coding, it's New code that is in the um, uh, in the HDFS tree, and you can think of it as something dealing with RAID in the same way as uh, rather than just straight three X replication. So you have this ability to um, have you know a couple of copies and a, a delta in between. Um, a checksum that allows you to recreate that data. So the idea is that rather than you know three x replication of data, um, it actually gives you about one and a half x. So yep. it's more space efficient. But there's a compute overhead to compute those deltas. Um, so it does mean that uh, it's potentially going to be slightly slower, mm-hmm. or it will be it's slower lovely. for the majority of use cases. I have heard some mutterings that for certain use cases you might see. Uh, next to no performance degradation, but I, I haven't yet heard what those use cases yeah. might be. So I'm, maybe they'll come up in that session. Yeah, that would definitely also be the one that I want to hear because it's uh, new tech, right? Nobody has seen it in the, in the wild yet. And yeah. there's a lot of uh, demand for it for uh, cool and uh, frozen storage. Yeah, Just for definitely. the stuff that you don't want to lose, but you don't want to spend the cost of the three times application. So... Yeah, it's a bit of pity because the fraud detection with deep learning with Spark would also tickle my fancy, but nope, erasure coding all the way there. Yeah, there we go. All right, so the next slot, the 11.20 till 12, I have to say I would there – there are two two areas in here that I, I couldn't quite easily decide against. I would probably go for the cybersecurity in Hadoop, which is uh, with Telstra, Um I do, however, think that like the smart cities and yeah. impact necessity session would potentially be really good. Yeah. I think smart cities are uh, um, a huge growing case, uh, you know, very much in its infancy at the moment. Um, but I think that's going to be a, a massive big data use case as, as time progresses. We're already seeing smart infrastructure going in, mm-hmm. you know, everywhere. Um, so I think I think that is that's. Potentially, my prediction is that's going to be one of the next big boom areas, smart cities generally. Yeah, and it's also interesting to see Oracle giving that session. You don't see Oracle that often at the Hadoop Summit. So it would also be a good way of kind of feeling how Oracle, what Oracle's stance is in the big data world these days. Yeah. Because they have been very protective. So, uh, yeah, I think the smart cities for me would be the, the choice. All right, so 12.10 to 12.50, the uh, session just before lunch that people want to finish really soon <laughs> so they can go and actually get fed. Um, uh, there's a lot from Telstra for that. Telstra has a lot of talks. Yeah, yeah, well, they're doing a lot with big data, so it kind of makes sense. Yes, another another uh, Telstra session, but I think 
So we we have our our, our friends here at uh, you know, Casey Seller is uh, covering ML Lib, um, but I think for me this particular session would probably be. Um, lighting up IoT projects with Spark on HD Insight. <laughs> I think. Are you stealing all my choices? Oh, well, <laughs> I'm talking first. That's where how, that's where it works. <laughs> so that would be your choice as well. Uh, yeah, because uh, it's Microsoft, and I work at Microsoft, so I have to say Microsoft has good things. But the thing that sparks me in the title, pardon the pun, is you have an HD Insight Spark, you have an HD Insight Storm choice. And here they're doing IoT with Spark, which would be the Spark streaming stuff then. Yeah. So, yeah, kind of interesting. I know one of the guys I've seen, I've had convers- email conversations, one of the guys ought to be talking there, which is an intelligent person. So, yeah, that one has my interest. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So then we have line. Uh, just checking that the other ones push. are nah, not really. I guess the ML lib is always interesting, but it's a Hortonworks. Mm, nah, IoT. Yep. All right. So break for lunch, and then we've got <laughs> two till two forty. Um, I think I would probably, I would probably go for the uh, Spark Meets Smart Meters session. I, I want to go first. Australia's next, okay. energy transformation, AGL Energy. I think that sounds like that could be a really good session. It is the business section, so I'm not sure, yeah. Jan, whether the, the topic is strong enough to dra- drag you in. Uh, the topic would be, but since it's the business one, I would probably give the uh, priority to the one to the side, the, the, to the right there, how to extract insights from big data using predictive analytics with machine learning and artificial intelligence, or the person that won the My Title is Longest contest. Yeah, That's, well done. Uh, <laughs> I think I would go for that one then. So I don't have to be in the same room with you. Fair enough. (laughs) Go on then. What's your next choice? Um, Let's see. The W I don't really care about. Big data in action. Sounds a bit too markety. Hadoop for the masses. I think I've seen that one before, so it would be Apache Metron because I'm also kind of looking forward to what the status of that project is. Last time I heard the Apache Metron was still very much in the early alphas. I would hope that they would have a somewhat finished product by now that should be able to go GA end of year. So I would like to know where they are at that. Well, I'll be I'll be doing all things Metron all next week. So uh, ah. maybe we'll maybe we'll do a session on Metron. Who knows? Yeah, maybe get somebody in here who knows something about it. Oh, I mean, you yeah. were going to do Metron. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're probably right. We should probably get somebody in. <laughs> All right. So moving on, moving on. Uh, afternoon one. tea. So it's afternoon tea in Melbourne, Australia. Very nice. Yeah, but it's colony has to be right. I guess so. Four till four forty. Um, well, what's your pick fun. here? Uh, just reading the first title. Why is my Hadoop cluster slash job slow? It's a, it's a nice question. Yep. It'll be interesting to see how they answer it. Okay. So I would have to go for. The uh, a continuously deployed Hadoop analytics platform telling me he's dreaming <laughs> session by uh, Graham Gear from Cloudera because uh, I know Graham very very well. We uh, worked together many years ago. Uh, so if you're listening, Graham, hello. Hope everything's <laughs> going well. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd go to that session and, and uh, go and see Graham. But uh, yeah, I think those are the two sessions that, that actually also seem most interesting. The the why is my Hadoop cluster slash job slow is it's like the continuous question that people have. And usually it's just because they haven't done the basics of tuning. Now you could also say, well, why aren't the basics done for you? And actually that's kind of a, uh, that's getting to be the point where it's a fair comment. I think more should be done to switch a lot of the bells and whistles on from the very beginning. But the argument is, uh, as I understand it, that a lot of the bells and whistles aren't switched on by default because people uh, prize stability over yeah. speed. And, you know, I get that. Yeah. But it's a fair choice. We should do more testing to make sure that speed can be stable. Mm-hmm. Now, about your choice there, the continuously de- uh, deployed Hadoop and the Lit platform, tell him he's dreaming. Do you think he's sarcastic? Well, because the I title doesn't really it doesn't give me enough information to to figure out which so way it's going to go. If you actually um, 
if you actually look at the uh, the session, so ah. if you click on the session, you can get more information. And what we're actually talking about is where is the industry today? What is state of the art, and what you know what can be continuously deployed? Um, not just uh, not just philosophically, uh, but by the way of real world examples and mm. practical demonstrations. So I think it's okay. it's not necessarily um, you can't do this today. Uh, but it's it's going to be a state of state of the art. What you can do today, what yeah. people are working towards. I do hope he has some kind of conclusion, not not just open questions. Uh, Graham's a good guy. I'm sure he'll have a conclusion. <laughs> well, we'll hopefully hear from our listeners. Indeed. Okay, last slice. Uh, future of Apache Storm. Some people say it doesn't have a future. I don't agree. Data science at scale, a unified data science platform for research and production applications, another contestant for the long title prize. High performance spatial temporal trajectory analysis at Spark, and then file format benchmarks. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, so, and that would be my choice, actually, file oh. format benchmark. Um, just because it's the kind of thing it's always nice to know about. It's the kind of thing you regularly, or at least I regularly get asked. What And the questions tend to be things like, what compression ratio can I expect? Uh, what's the performance overhead of this type of compression versus that type of compression? And this format versus that file format is also you know, regularly um, something that comes up. So I think that, yeah. I think, would be a nice reference session. Yeah, and also Owen O'Malley, it's not a an unknown person. I mean, he kind of knows what he's talking about no. usually. He's a nice guy to listen to as well. The thing is with benchmarks, there's lies, lies, politics, statistics, and then benchmarks, right? True. So that's, I don't know. I, I would hope it's a good one. That being said, considering what else is on at that time slot, I'm pretty sure he will win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Because uh, on the other hand, the future of Apache Storm, that's also an interesting one because there's been a lot of uh, rumbling in the ranks, let's say, that Storm isn't advancing as fast as it should and all of these other things are a lot better. That being said, maybe it's true, but Storm does give you a bit of stability in your IoT cluster, so it's definitely not going anywhere. But yeah. uh, you got, for example, is it, um, it wasn't LinkedIn that went from Storm for Heron, that was Twitter, I think. Yeah, yeah. It dumped uh, Storm. So that might be an interesting one as well. So it would be between those two. Fair enough. And that's so it. conclusions, I think, I mean, one thing, so first of all, uh, welcome to uh, your first Hadoop Summit. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I think if you look at the sort of comparison, you can see the uh, Hadoop Summit within uh, Melbourne, Australia. You've got uh, four parallel tracks, and it sort of exists over sort of a day and a half. Um, if you're looking at uh, Hadoop Summit in Dublin, that was um, seven tracks and uh, over pretty much uh, two full days. If you go all the way to Summit San Jose, then you've got uh, nine parallel tracks over three full days pretty much. So you definitely get a feel that as the uh, as the individual uh, events mature and the scale increases and just the, the scale of uh, an event like this in the US versus an event in APAC or in, in Europe, um, you know, San Jose is still the big daddy. But I think what they've done with Hadoop Summit in Melbourne is they've concentrated it. They've distilled the essential sessions, the sessions you really need to go to. And I think I think they've done a really nice job of mm -hmm. filtering it down to the core pieces that everyone needs to know. Yeah, kind of happy. It's quite technical-oriented. The business track is relatively small here, so that's good. The one thing I'm perhaps disappointed a bit is there's not many local companies doing a presentation it's a lot of Hortonworks, IBM, Telstra, there are a lot as well. But as part from the Bank of Australia, I don't see anybody in there. And of course, uh, Yahoo Japan uh, from the Asia Pacific uh, part of the world, which is a bit sad because you would hope that different parts of the world have different, maybe not the different problems, but a different dialect of the problem and see how they solve it in their way with their cultural uh, background. Well, I think, 
Yeah, that's, it's, I mean, so the, all the Telstra ones are that's Australia. So yeah, but they're they're on all the other ones as well. So I don't really see them as a local I think, company. No, I would I would disagree with that. I think okay. they've they've got more sessions on this one than they have on. I think True. they've had like one or two previously. True. Whereas they've got like five or six here. I think. Um, yeah, I think it's it's tough, isn't it? I mean, they've tried to do what they can to make sure that they get the core technology mm-hmm. information across while still making presence for uh, local organizations. So I think, I don't yeah. know, I think you, you have to strike a balance. I personally think the balance is about right. Maybe that would have been nice if there had been one or two more um, from local organizations. Mm. But, you know, yeah, you, have to, you have to do what you can with the submissions you get. You get. Yeah, and if I just compare it with uh, the first European Hadoop summits, which were in Amsterdam for the first three or four years or something, there was a lot of evangelization going on, just keep making sure people had the same baseline, had the basics covered that, okay, this Hadoop thing, you know, we know, know what this is. And then after the first, I think it took about three years before the Hadoop summit Europe blossomed and started going a- a- across the whole ecosystem. So, well, Melbourne, they're uh, at the very first start here. So it's a good basis. I agree. All right. So that wraps up our preview for Hadoop Summit Melbourne. Um, If you are going to Hadoop Summit Melbourne, please do reach out to us, say hi, and uh, let us know how you got on. Let us know if this was useful uh, and let us know, you know, what the event was like, what you enjoyed, what you didn't enjoy. Yeah. Make us believe that we have to go to the Melbourne Summit next year ourselves. (laughs) <laughs> gives enough <laughs> enough uh, um, how you say this enough reasons to convince our bosses to send us there yeah that sounds like an excellent plan <laughs> help us come to you <laughs> alright so anything else from you Jan? Uh, nope I think we've done here alright in that case that's about all we have time for today we hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data we'll be back in two weeks time with a brand new episode Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, send us your questions, and please give us a five-star review on iTunes. As Jan often says, I'm not a big fan of iTunes, but it is a great way for people to discover this podcast and for us to broaden our audience. If you don't think we deserve the full five stars, then that's okay. But in that case, it's on you to contact us via the feedback form on our website or via email Um, podcast at roaringelephant.org with your feedback exactly why you don't think we deserve the full five stars what we can do to improve it and we promise we will listen and read every single one of those so comments criticisms and other feedback more than welcome with that my name is dave and my name is john and we look forward to talking to you in two weeks time see you then bye-bye